Hear then the word of the Lord from the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be acceptable, accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar, that is, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire, that is, on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Micah 6, 6-8 With what shall I come to the Lord, and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Thus far the written word. Our Heavenly Father, Make us to understand this day the wonders of your grace and the sanctification, the growth and holiness that you command and provide for us when you have justified us in Jesus Christ. Let us therefore learn to rightly differentiate justification from sanctification, law from gospel, and may we grow and mature in the faith that you have called us. And may you be glorified now and always. Amen. Please be seated. Chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Romans provides for us the best systematic treatment of the gospel of grace. There, the Apostle Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, writes to us that we are to see ourselves as those who are hopeless, sinners without any virtue, unable to do any good unless God transforms us and makes us his own. We are told that we are saved not by our works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. As the first Adam failed to keep the covenant of works and brought death to himself and his posterity, Jesus Christ did obey the covenant of works and brought life for those whom he represents through his federal headship. We are told that this life is freely given to the undeserving, that there is no one who has merited any reward, and yet we are freely given all things in Jesus Christ so that we are able to call God our Father 
and boast of our confidence in Him because He will never deny us. He will never fail in any of His promises. And therefore, by grace alone, through faith alone, we are recipients of the everlasting inheritance. Then the Apostle Paul went on to explain that this is not given in a general way, but it's given to particular individuals. And that we, by name, were chosen by God. And therefore we are to live and breathe and thank the Lord our God for all that we have received. And then we come to chapter 12. And chapter 12 now continues on a thought that he addressed back in chapter 8, whereby we were called to be renewed in the mind of Jesus Christ. And it was not expanded upon there. But now we are being told that this justification and this grace which we have freely received also brings to us a transformation in our lives, that we are to now grow in sanctification and in holiness. These verses are justly very famous verses from this book, memorized by many. The trouble is, so many people basically start their understanding of the gospel and the Christian life from chapter 12. But we must see, this cannot be. It would be very dishonoring to God for us to ignore chapters 1 through 11 and basically begin from chapter 12 as we try to understand how we are to live as believers. Why would this be a problem and why is this done? Consider... For most of the world, the gospel is simply this. God loves good people and rewards good works. And therefore, if you seek to be good, if you give it your all and acknowledge when you fail, God will reward you for these things. And so what they have done is jettisoned Christ and his work and basically brought to you morality and therefore legalism. But notice how the Apostle Paul begins. I urge you therefore, I urge you in light of all that we have discussed, I urge you in light of the knowledge that you now have that it is in Jesus Christ alone that you will find life and your redemption. Brethren, by the mercies of the Lord God that you now present your bodies as living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And this is your rational service of worship. What we are going to learn through the next few chapters are the outworkings of that grace which has been given to us. We will understand that though we are saved by grace alone, our deliverance was not simply from the penalty of the sin that we deserve but rather it is also a deliverance from that dead life that we were leading. It is a deliverance from that worthless works which only brought further condemnation and which only continued to insult the living God. This deliverance which we have received is a transforming deliverance. It is raising us up to a new life. And so the Apostle Paul calls us to be those who offer themselves as living sacrifices. Now what does this mean? Let us turn then back to Leviticus in order to understand what a sacrifice is. It is that which is given over to God. 
It is that which loses itself in order that God may receive the glory. Talking now about a member of the Israelite covenant community bringing a sacrifice. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it, a particular type, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So the type of animal is determined, the location of the sacrifice is determined, and then the sacrificer must identify himself with the animal. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. So you see now what's going on. That which the member of the Israelite covenant could not do, which was to atone for his own sins, God makes provision through a substitute, the burnt offering. And so the one bringing the burnt offering must be identified with it and say, yes, it is on my behalf this animal is about to die. And he shall slay the young bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the sweat, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. So then the sacrifice is of no physical use to the one who brings this offering, because he gets none of it back. All of it must be burnt up. It is wholly given over to God as an understanding that God is a deliverer. God is the only comfort. God is the one who must forgive the sins of the one bringing the sacrifice. And so he gets back nothing out of it physically, but only the comfort whereby God declares, I have received the sacrifice on your behalf. And now I will forgive your sins, as this points forward to Jesus Christ. But this imagery of the sacrifice is now what we are being called to do. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And this shall be your rational, many Bibles will translate it, a spiritual service of worship. Here we are being told that we must now, in light of all that we have learned already about God's grace, see ourselves as dead to the world, dead to our own desires, and now wholly dedicated to the service of God. We are told that this is in fact the intellectual, rational response. It is that which anybody who understands what Christ has done should do, to give up himself and his own desires, to die to the sinful pleasures of this world, and instead to live for the glory of God. How then is this to be done, and what does it mean? To many it means simply coming up with more and more rules that cut off more and more things from the world. And in fact, the less things that you can actually enjoy in the world, the holier you will be. 
And so you go through and you see what does the world tend to enjoy. They enjoy movies? Cut those out. Do they enjoy wine? Cut that out. Do they enjoy sleeping on a mattress? Cut that out. Do they enjoy heating? Cut that out. So that you eventually wind up as a hermit that you will not associate with anyone for fear that you may actually take pleasure from the company of another human being. And you will sleep in the desert. You will sleep on rocks. You will only eat locusts or rats that you catch and you will not even bother cooking them because God forbid there be an ounce of pleasure in this world and you say there I have now made myself a living sacrifice to the Lord I have nothing in this world to enjoy that's not what it's saying to do what we are being told to do is to give up the sinful passions and desires. We are being told to grow in the knowledge of what God has given us through Jesus Christ. And therefore, this living and holy sacrifice that we are commanded to be is as those who live in the world created by their Father, who have been given all the senses that the body possesses, and who are to enjoy this creation with gratitude to God but not to ever forget God and seek self-pleasure at the expense of those made in his image and at the expense of that which he has revealed in his word to be holiness and that which pleases him. We are told that this idea of being the living sacrifice is reasonable. It is rational. It is that which you will come to as you sit there and just tabulate what needs to be done. I am a sinner who deserves eternal wrath. I have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am made a new creation in Him. I look for the day that I shall see God face to face, and I have confidence that this day will come. In light of all these things, how can I go on sinning? What Paul said back in chapter 6, how is it that those who have been made alive could ever consider further sinning as an option? And he says, this cannot be. It's not reasonable. It is not spiritual. And so your reasonable or rational service of worship is to now live for God every moment of your lives. How then will you do this? Do not be conformed to this age or to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, and acceptable, and perfect. Now herein comes kind of a problem. The Apostle Paul does go on to explain to us love and forgiveness, tells us that we are to obey rulers and authorities, but most people really want a much more detailed list of rules and laws. But notice what the Apostle Paul does not say. He does not say, Go back and read the Ten Commandments and all the rules that I gave to the Israelites and obey those things. He does not tell us that we are to have a list of rules that we can check off day by day and see that we have conformed to the will of God. He says the manner shall be this. Rather than going along with what the world is doing, therefore being conformed to this age, rather you are to be one who is transformed as God renews your mind. And in this, a new thought process that is being given to you, a new way of thinking and seeing, you will actually be led into the right way. 
Now, does this mean that every believer can simply say, well, I have the Holy Spirit, I never need to read the Scriptures again? No, Paul is not saying that. Keep in mind how often Paul quotes the Old Testament, how he reveres it as the given Word of God. But he has warned us, conformity to the law by human efforts only brings judgment and destruction. Seeking to be right in the presence of God by the law will only bring judgment and destruction. He has said that in chapter 5, in chapter 6, chapter 7. We are told we are dead to the law. But now, this conformity to the renewed mind of Jesus, to our mind being renewed so that we will be transformed to the mind of Christ, will be informed by the law. It will be guided by that which God has shown reflects his true character. But it is not the obedience to that law that will make us right with God. Do you understand the difference? What is coming first? What's coming first is justification by grace. What is happening in this act where God saves you, he begins to transform you. He begins to make you understand that you are a sinner. Well, what is sin? It's obviously a violation of God's law. And then he begins to transform you to the mind of Christ so that you start thinking not in terms of how do I stop sinning, but rather, how do I serve God with true worship? Keep in mind, as Jesus is walking along while he is on earth, he is not every moment trying to figure out, okay, I'm not allowed to do that, I'm not allowed to do that, which is unfortunately what many Christians do because we are steeped in moralism and legalism. We're afraid of transgressing God's law so that we're constantly focused on the avoidance aspect. But what we are being told now is that we are to grow into the mind of Christ so that we start thinking not in terms of what do I avoid, but given this opportunity, how do I serve God? What does Jesus do? He goes around and he is using his time of ministry to preach the gospel, the good news. He is celebrating life at banquets. He is transforming water to wine so people may be able to have all of their senses utilized to rejoice in what God has created. He heals the sick. He raises the dead, things which we obviously are not gifted to do. But we are able to nonetheless see that the word of God is preached to the ends of the earth so that the spiritually dead shall be raised up, so that those who are sick and dying shall have hope of resurrection life. So, that's why Paul does not take us back to the law as the starting point, but takes us to the mind of Christ as our starting point for growing in sanctification. Go back to Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Again, very famous verses. Now, the way you must read this is that verses 6 and 7 are the questions that are being asked by a man who is a sinner who understands that somehow God needs to be pacified, but is really not concerned about giving up his sin. In fact, he wants to keep his sin. He just wants to find out what the price is he has to pay. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings? Shall I come to him with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
He's negotiating with God. He wants to find out, at what point can I offer you enough so that you will get off my case? At what point will you allow me to continue my sinful desires on earth and still receive blessing in the life to come? Is it sacrifices you want? Is it oil you want? What do you want? I will give it to you. And then the response comes through the prophet. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not the sacrifices that God desires. Those don't save sinners. It's not the attempts to avoid sin, that which says, I will do these things and thereby you will reward me. Obviously, believers should avoid sin, but it should not be as we attempt to impress God by doing that. He says, what I want you to do is to remember who I am, to recall that you are made in my image, and therefore I expect you to be those who practice justice, who love to show kindness to others, and those who are always humble before the Lord their God. Do you see the huge difference between the legalistic understanding, the self-righteousness, versus the godly sanctification? In the legalistic understanding, each and every person goes before God and makes a list of rules that they offer to God, and they say, if I keep these things, then by all means, I really hope you will give me the blessing. So look at all the stuff that I used to enjoy, I'm putting them on the list. See, I'm cutting them out so that, therefore, now, you will see me as more virtuous. Of course, we dispense with Christ in doing these things. And unfortunately, this is the majority of conservative Christianity. It is this idea of, if I deprive myself of enough, then I will finally impress God and be saved. The other one is, especially those who are richer, use this one. Fine, I've sinned, whatever, but God... Let me do things that no one else can do. You need a church built? Fine, I'll give the money for it. You need to buy a new organ? Fine, I'll give the money for it. What do you want? Hospitals, orphanages, schools? Whatever you want, I will continue to give of these things. You just let me go on doing what I wish to do. And this is unfortunately the mindset of many people. And it's unfortunately the mindset even of those who are not fabulously wealthy. But certainly of the rich, you see this a great deal. They go on with wicked lies. They are unfaithful to their spouses. They ignore their children. But then they build churches and everybody praises them for all the money they gave for the church or the university or the hospital. And thereby, they are receiving from people a response that, that confirms in them, yes, my giving this money has made up for all the horrible things I've done. So the conservatives... They seek to do things like avoiding sin. The liberals just sort of seek to make up for it by other ways. And again, the richer are better able to pull this one off. But Paul tells us what we are actually supposed to do is be living sacrifices, to die to ourselves, to live in recognition of who God is and what he has done through Jesus Christ. And then using the idea here from uh, Micah 6.8, that we are to simply seek to live in conformity with the image of God in which we were created. Loving justice, righteousness, and that which is good. Always extending loving kindness to others. Showing mercy and compassion. 
and before the Lord our God, never coming before him in pride or in arrogance and demanding from him that he respect our decisions or actions. Rather, we are to go before him with true humility, acknowledging, as we did in our confession of sin, that we do not do good, that in fact we have delighted in those who do evil, and only by God's grace shall there be hope for us that we will be saved. So going back to chapter 12 of Romans, I urge you, therefore, brethren, in light of all that has already been written to you, which demonstrates to you the mercies of God, to now present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, to now go before the Lord your God with true joy, understanding that this present evil age is no longer your home, but rather you live for God. Your treasures are in heaven above. You believe that Jesus Christ is preparing a home for you. And therefore, you come to God presenting yourself completely, mind, will, and body. And this is acceptable to God. This is that which is reasonable, rational. It is the true service of worship that God commands. And so... To explain, do not be conformed to this age. Do not follow their philosophies. Do not be taken in by their deceptions. Do not love that which this world loves. But rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not simply say, I've been saved by grace, and so I'll just fall back on that and go on being who I was before. Be transformed. It's a command that is being given to us. We are expected to more and more take on the mind of Christ, to more and more delight in God as he did, to be willing to go to death on the cross because God revealed this is what he wanted done. Jesus was that living sacrifice in that manner, willing to do whatever, regardless of the cost regardless of the pain. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may approve, prove what the will of God is. That we may demonstrate that God working in us is making us to conform to the holiness of life that is revealed in his law. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. Do the Reformed believe in grace alone and no works for our justification? Yes, absolutely. There is nothing that we can do that will merit anything in the sight of God. By grace alone shall anyone be saved. Do we therefore believe that we are free to do whatever we want? Because since our works don't contribute to our justification, then they really don't matter. Not at all. We receive the scriptures entirely. And the Apostle Paul has already said, you cannot go on sinning so that God's grace will be even more abundant because your sins were so much greater. Rather, we are told, you must know that you have died to the old self and have been raised up with Christ. You now have the mind of Christ. You have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you. You are being transformed and renewed in your thinking. And this 
shows that you approve of. In other words, that you now have been made to understand God is perfect. His law is holy. It reflects what you were created to be. Now, will memorizing the law help you to keep it? No. Will having it tattooed on you, having it posted on every wall of your house and on your door, help you to be a better person? No. We have already seen in Romans, the more the law is presented, the more wicked man becomes. It's counterintuitive. We always think, oh, more rules makes people better. No. More rules makes people more rebellious. The gospel of grace is the one that transforms people and makes them to think the mind of Christ. And that is why he says, in light of the mercies of God which you have already had expounded to you, therefore now present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the biblical, God-centered model. That's why the preaching can never begin with, here is the law, here's more law, here's how you fail to keep the law, now start keeping the law, be good, and God will love you. Which is the majority of the world's thinking. God's thinking is, here is the law, here's your gross failure, let me tell you what I will do. Let me tell you how my love will overcome, how I will bring to you my mercies through the grace of Jesus Christ and make you my own precious possession. And now, in light of the fact that I have already delivered you while you were dead in your sins and transgressions, here is the new life that I have saved you to lead. I will transform your mind. You will not need to be worried every moment of every day how you are keeping my law because I am going to conform your mind to the mind of my precious son. You will know and understand as you mature in the faith what is right and what is good. And as you mature in this faith, you will see that you are becoming more and more like Christ your Savior, being one who exercises justice with mercy one who shows love to the weak and to the helpless, one who is willing to die to self to live for God, and one who acknowledges that God is holy and perfect and good with every breath that he takes and with every word that he speaks. This is a very, very different doctrine of sanctification than many of you have probably learned. But this is the biblical doctrine. This is the one that the Spirit of God commanded the Apostle Paul to write. In light of God's mercies, grow in grace. Be sanctified. May your life reflect the true holiness of God which is worked in you by his spirit, that you may glorify him and he may receive all the praise of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us. We ask you, O Lord, that we will understand more fully the doctrines of grace which are revealed in the scriptures so that we will not be led astray by our own foolish thinking and the powers of this present age which make us to believe that man is sovereign, that man is able to do the good that merits reward, that we can negotiate with you, trade and deal with you, and ultimately come to a covenant whereby we will have worked out the details and you will be forced to reward us by whatever standards we choose. Rather, O oh Lord, we pray that we will come before you with true humility, seeing only your mercy and your grace, 
understanding that you have delivered sinners by grace, that you have unilaterally brought about a covenant whereby sinners are delivered, the blood of Christ atones for sins, that we are made your own precious possession, and we are to serve you forevermore. Glorify your name, O Lord, as you continue the work which you began in us, and that you will complete in the last day. Amen. Let us then stand and sing from Psalm 1, That man is blessed who fearing God, acknowledging that we are called to be servants of the King and to glorify his name. Let us stand and sing.